Thank you for listening to In Good Faith, the Central Reformed Church Sermon Podcast. This episode's sermon is titled, Blessed Are You, or Not, and is based on Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. It was delivered on Sunday, August 14th, 2022, by guest preacher Scott Jose. second lesson today is from the Gospel of Luke. Luke uh, at the sixth chapter, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the outstanding Bible commentator and Bible teacher, Frederick Dale Bruner, once summarized the character of the four Gospels this way. Matthew is the gospel for teachers. Matthew is all about education and knowledge and understanding things correctly. Mark is the gospel for evangelists. Mark is fast-paced and dynamic, and it gets at the heart of Jesus' power immediately and all over the place. John is the gospel for elders and spiritual teachers. John's theology is thick and weighty, and it it takes some maturity to get through it. But Luke's gospel, Bruner says, Luke is the gospel for deacons and social workers. Luke is the gospel where, where Jesus is forever extending his hands in deeds of mercy and healing and in lifting up those whom the rest of society had cast aside. Now you can see that all over the gospel of Luke of course, but we certainly see it this morning in Luke's version of the Beatitudes. Now, in preaching class at seminary, I always tell my students that when preaching on any one of the four Gospels, don't spend time in the sermon making comparisons to the other three Gospels. And in particular, don't do that when the account of what is surely the same story is rather different in, say, Luke's telling of it as opposed to Matthew's telling of it. 
It's just not a great move to do in a sermon. A, some people find it distracting. B, some people find it distressing. C, some people don't care. It's a good rule for sermon writing, and so I'm going to break it right now, because good rules can have exceptions, especially when they're mine. Then again, if in what I'm about to do, if some of you find it uh, distracting, distressing, or boring, well, don't say I didn't warn you, that might happen. But even so, many of us uh, know that the, the better known, the more familiar version of the Beatitudes comes from Matthew 5 and the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, uh, a three-chapter powerhouse of, of teaching and, and preaching there in Matthew's Gospel. Luke, however, has Jesus saying these same things, but not up on a mountain somewhere, but rather in, on a plain or in a valley somewhere. And what's more, Luke's version seems far more earthy, far more physical than Matthew's telling of it. Luke has Jesus saying, blessed are the poor. But Matthew adds, in spirit. Luke has Jesus saying, blessed are those who are hungry. Matthew adds, for righteousness. See, from a certain angle, one could conclude that, that uh, Jesus in Matthew 5 is talking about more spiritual things than the Jesus in Luke 6. And if you think that way, it seems to be confirmed when Jesus in Luke 6 includes something that's completely absent from Matthew 5, and that is a corresponding set of woes. Woe to you if you are rich now. Woe to you if you are well fed now. Well, there's nothing particularly spiritualized about any of those statements. I mean, having lots of money and, and plenty to eat, it's about as concrete and today as you can get. Of course, Luke has been throwing down this particular gauntlet from the get-go. Before you can even get out of Luke's opening chapter, we see the young woman Mary singing a song we now call the Magnificat. C.S. Lewis once called it a terrible song, but he didn't mean that as an aesthetic judgment, like saying, oh, it's a bad song. No, Lewis meant terrible here in the sense that the song is shocking, startling, unsettling, unnerving. Because here's this young woman crooning away about how God is going to scatter the proud and send the wealthy out and, and send the powerful away empty-handed. But the poor, the lowly, the despised, they were going to get elevated to heights of glory that one could scarcely even imagine right now. And if you doubt that Jesus has the power to make all that happen, you know, to, to bless the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the despised, if you doubt Jesus could do that, well, those doubts are erased in how Luke sets up the Beatitudes here in Luke 6. In the first verses that we just read here this morning, we are told that power was fairly leaking out of Jesus. People with every need imaginable were flocking to Jesus just to touch him or to be touched by him because you could get healed of your diseases and you could get set free from the demons that torment you just by quite literally rubbing shoulders with Jesus. Jesus was that 
powerful, that redolent of divine energy. Jesus was downright radioactive, but in a good way. And so anyone who at that very moment was capable of doing all of that surely knew what he was talking about in blessing some and cursing others. But if there is one thing Matthew and Luke have in common, despite the differences we just noted, it is this. In both versions, Jesus speaks these blessings, and in Luke now the woes, not to just anybody, but specifically to the disciples. Both Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus turned away from the wider crowds and spoke specifically to these disciples, to these people who got, whom Jesus had already called into the kingdom by grace alone. And among other things, what that tells us is that just being poor or, or hungry or despised is not like some automatic entry ticket to heaven. But when you are a disciple of Jesus and any of those things applies to you, well, then you can know that God has your back. Know that you will be filled and you will laugh and you will enjoy life in God's eternal kingdom because the way things are now are not a preview for how they will ultimately be. Then again, this also means that if you are a follower of Jesus already, but are rich and well-off and happy and well-thought-of now, well, those things could be warning signs for you to pay some attention to. Because if there's one thing that is clear about the Beatitudes, it is that the blessings that are promised are all from God and from God alone. And if you are poor and hungry and sad and persecuted, you know that you have to depend on God alone, right? You cherish your faith. You cherish your connection to Jesus. You lean into these kingdom promises as if your very life depended on it, because it does. But when you're well off in most every sense, the number one spiritual danger you face is having a sense of independence. You fancy yourself a, a self-made, rugged individualist. You earned what you have by the sweat of your brow, uh, by work and the cleverness of your, your mind, and if others have less than you do, well, they should get a job and work hard the same way as you did. And you know, if you ever let that kind of spiritual thinking move on down the road a bit, sooner or later we find that we no longer thank God for his gifts to us. We don't pray that God preserve us and, and keep our families safe, and, and we don't lean into the kingdom promises as if our very lives depended on it, because we've been taking care of our lives very well already, thank you very much. We've, we've beefed up our investment portfolios We've taken out insurance to make sure our families are covered. We do everything we can to make sure that the nest that is feathered is feathered by ourselves alone. So the Beatitudes are not automatic entry tickets to the kingdom of God, and the corresponding woes do not represent automatic dismissal from the kingdom of God. But what both represent is having the ability to look at life upside down. 
Years ago, uh, in a f- the first of a series of sermons I preached on the Beatitudes from Matthew, I asked my congregation, what do you think that Mr. or Miss Beatitude would look like? Suppose a given person perfectly embodied all the characteristics that Jesus describes. What would that person be like? Well, probably not always a barrel of laughs. A perfect embodiment of the Beatitudes would yield a person perpetually dissatisfied with life as it mostly is. No incident of injustice would ever just roll off Mr. Beatitude's shoulders. Government corruption or sheer ineptitude that ended up hurting innocent people would would cause Miss Beatitude to weep and to lament. This would be a person who had very little patience for idle cocktail party banter. Mr. Beatitude would always be championing lost causes. Miss Beatitude would always be angering corporate types or anybody else who would try to justify anything for the sake of the bottom line. In short, the person who perfectly embodied the Beatitudes would look a lot like, actually they'd look just like Jesus. Because as far back as the early church, preachers and teachers and theologians concluded that only Jesus is truly Mr. Beatitude. The only hope the rest of us have to move even a little bit more in that direction is to gain conformity to Christ through our baptism. We get more like Jesus through our subsequent baptismal living of daily dying and rising Dying and rising, dying and rising with Christ. Such dying to self and to the world so as to rise to Christ in the kingdom is what we are called to do every day. We cannot do this, of course. It's only by grace that we have been saved, and it is only by grace that we can become more like Jesus. It's what the Holy Spirit builds in us, not what we muster through our own efforts that moves us ever closer into the kingdom. But that's just where the struggle lies, isn't it? None of us finds it easy to live countercultural lives. We don't like flying upside down or appearing radically out of step with everybody else around us. And so throughout church history right down to today, the church is tempted in a thousand ways, large and small, to accommodate itself to the world and to whatever culture in which the church finds itself. Those of us familiar with Handel's Oratorio Messiah and its most famous part of the Hallelujah Chorus, we, some of us, know by heart a certain line from that song, The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and of His Christ. But sadly, in recent years, not a few of us have noticed, and so many of my pastor friends have gotten crunched by a sad reverse reality that seems to have taken hold in some churches, except we didn't really notice until just recently. And that is that the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ has become the kingdom of this world. The pandemic 
and a slew of political realities running alongside it and sometimes right straight through it have revealed that some esteem a certain version of American culture more than they esteem Christ and His cross. When push has come to shove in some places, neighbor love and Christ-like sacrifice have taken a backseat to personal freedom and the belief that nobody can tell anybody else how to behave. But that's just on the larger scale. Most of us, myself most certainly included, we have private struggles aplenty when it comes to trying to become more like Jesus. Do we fit the categories that, that Jesus calls blessed? And are we sufficiently working to avoid adopting the mindset of those things that Jesus calls a woeful condition? We all know how uncomfortable it is to look into the mirror of Christ. It's easy to point our fingers at others, but as with Nathan the prophet confronting David about that bad business with Uriah and Bathsheba, so the Holy Spirit keeps coming to us and saying, no, you are the man. You are the woman. And like David, we can but respond by saying, well, shoot then. <laughs> I have sinned. Where then is the hope? Where's the grace? Well, it's exactly where it always is. It's in the face of Jesus himself. Because if indeed Jesus had turned to the disciples to speak these blessings and also these woes, how do you think he looked at those people whom he had called by grace alone? Do you think that Jesus screamed these words at them? Did he look angry? Was he wagging a bony finger in their faces and trying to frighten them? It seems unlikely. The Bible rarely tells us how somebody said something. The Bible is not the place to turn if you want to read lines like, she said gently, he said laughingly, she said tersely. Now we're mostly left to imagine the acoustics. So I imagine, though I can't know, but I imagine that Jesus spoke even the woes here with an earnest gentleness, maybe even with tears forming in the corners of his eyes. He loved these disciples. He loves you and me. He wants the best for us. He wants us to see ourselves in the blessings and not in the woes. And he is here to help us be that way through his own tender mercy. Now sometimes it can be hard to picture this. What does life in the kingdom look like? How will the, 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 the hungry and the poor be filled? How will those who weep now one day laugh? If we all got a bit more like Jesus, what might the world or even the church look like? It can be hard to imagine this, but every once in a while, you, you catch a glimpse of it, and the glimpse can come sometimes from a surprising source. You may have heard me mention this before in another sermon, or maybe one of your pastors has over the years used this as an illustration, but I think that one amazing kingdom glimpse comes from the final scene of Robert Benton's lyric 1984 film, Places in the Heart. Set in the 1930s, 
the movie portrays Edna Spaulding, who is suddenly widowed in the film's opening scene when a young, drunk black boy named Wiley accidentally shoots Edna's husband, who is the town sheriff, through the chest. Wiley is quickly lynched by the white townsfolk, even as Edna is left with a load of debt thick enough to choke a horse and two very young children to raise. Well, eventually, Edna meets Mose, a, a black migrant farmer um, who, who knows a thing or two about raising cotton, and so is hired by Edna to try to make enough money to save herself from, from foreclosure at the hands of the town's very unfeeling banker. And it works. Edna makes enough money to save her farm. But the white townsfolk are not happy that Mose is around, and so dressed in their Ku Klux Klan outfits, they visit the farm one night, beat Mose mercilessly, and force him to flee. And, and as Edna watches Mose leave, and as the question as to whether she can make enough money again the next year without Moses' help, as that question lingers in the air, it kind of looks like the movie's over. Except it's not. There's one last scene. It's in church. It's a Sunday morning. The pastor had just delivered a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 on love, and then they serve communion. And that's where the film suddenly becomes surreal, but also deeply, deeply theological. Because first you notice that the church, which had been at best half full earlier, is now uh, quite full. But then to the startlement of us viewers, suddenly we see the bread and the wine being taken by a woman who had been killed by a tornado earlier in the film. The town prostitute is there too sitting next to the cold-hearted banker who had been so unfeeling in the face of Edna's fears of foreclosure. Then we see members of the KKK taking the Lord's Supper, and what's more, they pass the trays of the bread and the wine to the black man, Mose, who is suddenly there in church too, sitting there with Edna and her family. And finally, Edna takes the bread and the cup and then passes the trays to her husband, who is seated next to her, and next to him, the young black boy, Wiley, who had killed the sheriff and been killed himself as a result. And as the sheriff and Wiley eat the bread and drink the cup, they look at each other and they say, the peace of God. Well, that scene has confused secular audiences for decades now. People have no idea what in the world this could possibly mean. If you go to Google and Google the end of places in the heart, you'll find lots of articles and blogs that chalk this whole scene up to a sheer fantasy. This has to be a dream inside of Edna's head, one blogger wrote, because clearly a scene with a black man in a white church sitting with a Klansman and a murdered cop, well, this has to be a dream because it's not at all like this world. And that much is right. It is not at all like this world. But it is like the kingdom of God, and if it seems upside down to the daily realities we're used to, that's because it is. And if it seems like a dream, then it is the one dream of a creation made new that will come true because through the church and through each one of us, it is already coming true now. 
Blessed are you then if you are poor and hungry and weeping and persecuted because all the fullness that just is the kingdom of God will be yours because the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and of His Christ. Thanks be to God and amen. Please pray with me. For your kingdom promises, O Lord, we are grateful. For a vision of a world made new in the shape of your kingdom, we are grateful. For all that you do by your Holy Spirit in each of our hearts every day to mold and shape us a little more like you, we are grateful. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. New to Central? Since 1840, we have been connecting people to God and to one another through scripture, sacrament, song, and service. We are located on the corner of College Avenue and Fulton Street in the Heritage Hill neighborhood of Grand Rapids. We hope you'll give us the opportunity to meet you in person soon. To learn more about our mission, ministries, and the ways you can grow and serve, please visit our website at www.centralreformedchurch.org.